Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This is Friday, November 8th, 2019. I don't believe it's November already. And we are going to present part 37 of our commentary on the Gospel of John, and it is titled, The True Vine and the Tree of Life. I will, of course, necessarily repeat some concepts that we discussed last week when I presented The Way, but that's because Joshua Christ himself repeats these concepts. So I did my best to keep them fresh or present them in a slightly different light, at least. If things had to be repeated, that's a necessity. If I threw the kitchen sink into this content that I'm going to present this evening, I apologize for that in advance. It turned out to be a much longer presentation than I initially planned. The True Vine and the Tree of Life In our last presentation of this commentary on John chapter 14, we discussed the way, as we saw in verse 6 of the chapter, that Christ had declared that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So we made the assertion that the way of Christ leads to the tree of life, which, to put it simply, is Christ himself. Then, because he had also said in verse 15 of this chapter, that if you love me, keep my commandments, an admonition which he repeated several times throughout his discourse on this evening before he was crucified, we may discern that the keeping of the law represents the way to him. As we also explained, this is the significance of the cherubs, which, as it is described in Genesis chapter 3, were at first set to keep the way of the tree of life. So the cherubs had protected that path to Christ, as they were later seen aside the mercy seat, which was atop of the Ark of the Covenant, wherein the tablets of the law were kept. That mercy seat represented the ultimate judgment seat of Christ, where Paul wrote in Romans chapter 14, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In Proverbs chapter 7, we read, My son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers, and write them upon the table or tablet of thine heart. The wisdom of Solomon, which was inspired by God, Christ himself had followed on his own earthly walk, as Paul of Tarsus had informed his readers in chapter 4 of his epistle to the Galatians that Yahshua Christ was born in accordance with the law. He was born under the law. And he also kept the law so that he could redeem those who were under the law. 
We know that he kept the law because in Hebrews chapter 4, Paul had informed his readers that Christ was without sin, where he wrote, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He suffered everything that a man suffers, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Again, Paul wrote likewise where he had spoken of God in reference to Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Therefore, as an example to men, Christ himself had walked that same path which he encourages men to follow. Yet Christ is also the path, the path itself, or the way, because he is one with the Father who had authored that same law. For that same reason, in the opening chapter of his gospel, John had called him the Word made flesh. The symbol of the cherub was also found among the other nations of Mesopotamia, and especially in the iconography of the Assyrian kings. Cherubs of various sorts, all quite similar to the cherubs which had been discovered by archaeologists in ancient Israel, were found in the ancient ruins of Assyria. The Assyrians used them as symbols representing spirits which guarded the tombs, thrones, and palaces of their kings. We would interpret this as a cultural parallel where the Assyrians, descending from common ancestors, had in their own myths some of the elements of things which were also recorded in the Genesis account. Of course, there are also many other parallels in the myths of the related tribes of Mesopotamia and the Levant. As we shall see when we begin John chapter 15, Christ being the root and branch of Jesse, the root and offspring of David, the tree of life is a family tree, and Adam was its first branch. Now we shall resume our commentary on John chapter 14. But first we must recall that Christ was preaching a lengthy discourse to his disciples just before they departed from the house wherein they had shared their famous so-called Last Supper. As we have also seen, Judas had already departed from the group evidently to go to Jerusalem so that he may lead the officers of the temple back to where he knew that Christ would be, thereby consummating his act of betrayal. In the last verses which we presented from this chapter, Christ had informed his disciples that he was going to depart from them and that where he was going, they could not follow. Then, in order to console them, he promised them another comforter, or as we have translated the Greek term, an advocate which is certainly a reference to the Holy Spirit. Doing that, he once again informed him that he is that Spirit, as he made the promise that I shall not leave you fatherless, where the King James Version has comfortless, 
and he exclaims, I come to you. So he is certainly one and the same with that promised advocate. We did not note it then, but where the King James Version has, I will come, the verb in the text is actually in the present tense, I come. I would interpret this to indicate that his coming to them as the advocate or comforter would be imminent, nearly immediate. Finally, we left off where Christ had explained that they would see him again, and that once they did see him, they would know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In other words, they would understand that he is God, and that the Spirit of God is in him, and that they also shared that same Spirit. Having the understanding that Christ is Yahweh God incarnate, as the Apostle Thomas had declared that he is God, upon realizing the fact of his resurrection, the apostles later came to understand that the understanding itself could help them to identify the children of God. So John wrote in his first epistle in chapter 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Writing that, John was not speaking of disembodied spirits but of embodied spirits. And during the time of his ministry, Christ had declared that every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. They shall be rooted up because not every spirit is born of God. In the garden of Genesis, there was a tree of life. And there was also a tree of the knowledge of good and evil which is a tree of bastards and corruptions. The angels that sinned had strayed from the path. As Peter had said in his second epistle, they had forsaken the right way and are gone astray. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, the tree of knowledge, than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. That is the evil part. From a messianic prophecy in the 16th Psalm, we read in the words attributed to David, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy, 
At thy right hand there are pleasures for evermore, if one follows the path of life. So, keeping the way expressed in the commandments, as well as loving one's kindred neighbor, is the only way to abide in the good graces of God and find the path to the tree of life. As Christ now continues to explain, returning to where we had left off in John chapter 14. He having my commandments, this is verse 21. <clears throat> he having my commandments and keeping them is he who loves me. Then he who loves me shall be loved by my father and I shall love him and make myself manifest to him. This is not a new message. This is the original message of the Old Covenant found throughout the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Know therefore that Yahweh thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And then again in chapter 11. And it shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love Yahweh their God, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in its due season, the first, the first rain and the later rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn or grain and thy wine and thine oil, and I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. Yahweh shows his love for Israel by providing for them the things that they need. The ancient Israelites failed to keep the commandments of God, and for that they were put off in the punishment of the captivities. So later, in another messianic prophecy from the 78th Psalm, in words attributed to Asaph, who was a prophet of the captivity, we read, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of Yahweh and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God.
as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 13. Christ cited this passage in reference to himself. The purpose of Christ is to grant mercy upon Israel for their sins and to call the children of Israel, the generation of the future which was described by Asaph, to return to obedience to Yahweh their God and to keep his commandments. Earlier, Christ had told his disciples that he is departing from them, but he promised them that they would see him again in verse 19 where John wrote, Yet a little while the world and the world seeth me no more, but you see me, because I live, ye shall live also. But here Christ appears to be promising those who would keep his word and his commandments another sort of manifestation, which is transcendental, although Jude interprets this promise of manifestation literally. Judah, or Judah, not Iscariot, as John adds in parentheses. Judah says to him, Prince, what comes to pass that you are going to make yourself manifest to us and not to society or to the world, if you will? This must be Jude the Apostle, the author of the epistle by that name, the brother of the elder James. And both men were half-brothers of Yahshua himself, through Mary, their mother, their common mother, regardless of what the Catholics say about Mary's eternal virginity. She had like five other kids with a second husband. We see both James and Jude mention where Christ was speaking in parables in a synagogue in Nazareth, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 13. And the people who witnessed it were incredulous, responding, Is this not this? Is this not this? I'm sorry. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, there was a girl also, at least one. In the list of the twelve apostles, given in Luke chapter 6, we read of James, the son of Alphaeus, and Judas, the brother of James, where it also becomes evident that later in life, after the birth of Christ, Mary had another husband besides Joseph of Nazareth. Paul had referred to these men, James and Jude, as the brethren of the Lord, apart from Cephas or Peter and other apostles in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Yahshua now indicates that he was indeed speaking of a transcendental visitation and not of a literal appearance. But later, where he tells the where he had told the apostles that he would appear to them, we shall see later that that was of a literal appearance. So Jude is confusing the two. Yahshua replied and said to him, If one would love me, he shall keep my word, and my father shall love him, and we shall come to him, and we shall make an abode with him. 
Now, some manuscripts have I. The Codex Beze has I rather than we. This is the indwelling of the Spirit of God, which Paul later described in Romans chapter 8, where he was also writing of the struggle that each man has with his fleshly desires. For they who, and this is from verse 5, for they who are in accordance with the flesh strive after the things of the flesh, and they who are in accordance with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Indeed, the purpose of the flesh is death, but the purpose of the Spirit, life and peace. Because the purpose of the flesh is hostile to Yahweh, then to the law of Yahweh it is not obedient, neither is it able to be. And they that are in the flesh are not able to satisfy Yahweh. However, you are not in the flesh, but in spirit, if indeed the spirit of Yahweh dwells in you. And if one has not the spirit of Christ, he is not of him. If you're not of the Adamic race, you won't have that spirit at all. But if Christ is in you, indeed the body is dead because of fault or sin, but the spirit alive because of righteousness. Moreover, if the spirit of he who raised Yahshua from the dead dwells in you, he who raises the anointed from the dead will also produce alive your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are obligated not to the flesh to live in accordance with the flesh. For if in accordance with the flesh you live, you are about to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Indeed, as many as are led by the Spirit of Yahweh, these are the sons of Yahweh. Therefore, you have not taken on a spirit of bondage anew to fear, but you have taken on a spirit of the position of sons, in which we cry, Father, Father. That same spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of Yahweh. And if children then heirs, heirs indeed of Yahweh and joint heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer together, that also we will be honored together. Where Paul had said, that same spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of Yahweh. We see that there is the spirit which Yahweh instilled in the Adamic man, which is also described in the wisdom of Solomon in chapter 2 where we read, For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. If Yahweh God is a spirit, then his image is spiritual. And Genesis 1.26 and Genesis chapter 5 verse 3 attest that the Adamic man was made in the image as well as the likeness of God. If a man has that spirit, then choosing to be obedient to God, God can dwell with him. So Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, For you are a temple of the living God, just as God had said, I will dwell among them and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This teaching of the indwelling spirit is not new with the coming of Christ, but rather Christ was teaching something 
to which the pious men of the old covenant times had also attained. The same indwelling of the Spirit of God was described in Isaiah chapter 63, speaking of Moses, 900 years after Moses had passed, maybe 800 years. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? Several times it is said of Daniel in the book of Daniel that in him was the spirit of the holy gods, for an understanding of which we should refer to the 82nd Psalm. In the 51st Psalm, while begging mercy for his sins, David had asked God not to depart from him, where he wrote, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. So we may conclude <clears throat> that while each Adamic man has his own individual spirit, which is in the image of God, that man is not complete and has not lived to his full potential unless he chooses ob obedience to God so that the Spirit of God may dwell with him. Only then are the children of God recognized as his children, which is the so-called adoption or position of sons of which the scriptures speak. Christ continues his admonition in verse 24. This is John chapter 14. <laughs> he not loving me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but is of the Father who has sent me. As he himself had professed, Christ had come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So he could do nothing which was not written in the law or the prophets, otherwise he would not have fulfilled them. As John explained in the opening chapter of his gospel, Christ is the Word made flesh, and the Word which was with God in the beginning. So Christ is also the embodiment of the Word of God, which we have in the writings of the Old Testament. Therefore, his words were the words of God, as he is also a manifestation of that same God. Citing another passage from the law, another exhortation to keep the commandments. <clears throat> we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Know ye therefore that Yahweh thy God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays than that hate him to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hates him. He will repay him to his face. <coughs> Excuse me. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments, which I command thee this day to do them. So, in the Old Testament, as well as the New, 
Rejecting the commandments of God is tantamount to hating God himself, and those who hate him will ultimately be destroyed. However, it is also the purpose of God that all of Israel is ultimately obedient. As he said in Isaiah chapter 45, I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Then a little later in that same chapter, in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Christ once again promises a coming advocate or comforter, which he has already explained would be Christ himself. I have here would be he himself. That's a little, I would probably trip over that. I have spoken these things to you, abiding with you, verse 25. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, which the Father shall send in my name, which Christ says is him, I will come to you. He shall teach you all things and shall remind you of all things which I have told you. In the last of our commentaries on this chapter, part 36, which was titled The Way, we strove to explain that the apostles underwent a progression in their understanding from this time until the time when they had written their surviving epistles. And we substantiated that explanation by comparing the attitudes which they reflected in John's accounts here with the learning that they revealed in their later epistles. Here Christ tells his disciples that once he no longer abides with them, he will come to them in the form of the Holy Spirit, and now he tells them that this Holy Spirit will teach them all things. So it should be evident that after his departing from them, they did make that progression and that it did take many years for them to complete it. Beginning in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul spoke of a people who had been alienated from the civic life of Israel and had become strangers and sojourners because they were dead in transgressions and in sins. And these are references to the ancient people of Israel taken into the captivities and put off in punishment by God. So he also told them, that Yahweh, being rich in compassion, because of that great love of his, with which he has loved us, and we, being dead in transgressions, are made alive with the anointed, or perhaps with Christ. The prophets had promised that the children of Israel would be reconciled to God upon the coming of a Savior, which is Christ the Messiah. Paul explained in Romans chapter 4, and in a different way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, or in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, 
that his readers were indeed the nations of the promise to Abraham, that his seed had already become many nations, and that was fulfilled in the children of Israel up to and during their time of captivity. So, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul wrote, For this cause I, Paul, captive of Christ Joshua on behalf of you of the nations, if indeed you have heard of the management of the family of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in regard to you, seeing that by a revelation the mystery was made known to me, just as I had briefly written before, besides which reading you are able to perceive my understanding in the mystery of the anointed, which in other generations had not been made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed in his holy ambassadors and prophets by the Spirit. Those nations, this is the generation of those people of Asaph who would come in the future, those nations which are joint heirs and a joint body and partners of the promise of Christ in Christ Yahshua, through the good message of which I have become a servant in accordance with the gift of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me, in accordance with the operation of his power, to me, the least of all saints, has been given his favor, to announce the good message to the nations, the unsearchable riches of the anointed, and to enlighten all concerning the management of the household of the mystery which was concealed from the ages by Yahweh, by whom all things are being established. Therefore, it should be evident in those words that the apostles were taught by the Holy Spirit after the departure of Christ which is what Paul is professing, that he learned this mystery and the identity of these nations, as he says in verse 5, as it is now revealed in his holy ambassadors or apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So, what the apostles were taught by the Holy Spirit is also found in the words of the prophets. Then we also see here one important aspect of what they were taught, which is the identity of the nations that were of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, for which Christ had come, the household of the faith, which is the same house of Israel for whom the new covenant was promised in the words of those prophets so that the words of the prophets could be fulfilled. When Christ had first begun this discourse at the beginning of John chapter 14, he spoke for their encouragement where he said, your hearts must not be troubled. Now he continues to encourage them. I leave you peace, my peace I give you, not as society gives do I give to you. Your hearts must not be troubled nor afraid. Saying this, Christ continues to comfort them. The peace of the world or of the society is always an artificial 
temporary peace. It is never lasting. It's always a peace on certain conditions. You could be at peace with the United States government, for example, if you kiss the ass of the IRS every year. On more than one occasion, in the words of Yahweh in Jeremiah, in chapter 6 and 8, the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone that deals falsely, the scribes and wise men of the people, are chastised for their sins, and we read, they have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. In other words, they're just covering the wounds with bandages superficially, and they're not healing anything. Saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Real peace, real peace is to have peace with God. As we have just cited Paul in Romans chapter 8, and he said that the purpose of the Spirit is life and peace. That peace is obtained only by keeping the law, by keeping the commandments. As Paul also said in chapter 7 of that epistle, that we know that the law is spiritual. So the purpose of the Spirit is life and peace, as long as you keep the law. In the book of Job, a young man named Elihu, of the kindred of Ram, from the tribe of Judah, who was also Ram, was also an ancestor of David, rebuked Job and his three friends for their impiety. In that rebuke, Elihu describes two classes of men, the wicked, who are not preserved, and the righteous, who may choose obedience or disobedience, for which they face chastisement. This we read in Job chapter 36. Behold, God is mighty and despises not any. He is mighty in strength and wisdom. He preserves not the life of the wicked. He preserves not the life of the wicked, period, but gives right to the poor. He withdraws not his eyes from the righteous, but with kings are they on the throne. In other words, the righteous are exalted. Yeah, he does establish them forever, and they are exalted. And, even if they're sinners, right? So, the wicked aren't mere sinners. The wicked are a separate class of people. The righteous are righteous, even when they are sinners. So, God doesn't see things the way we do. God sees two trees, the wicked, which are from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the righteous, who are going to be saved and forgiven and granted mercy even when they sin. So, concerning the righteous, and if they be bound in fetters and beholden in cords of affliction, then he shows them their work and their transgressions that they have exceeded. He opens also their ear to discipline, and commands that they return from iniquity. The righteous are commanded to return from iniquity. So these are 
righteous men that are mere sinners. They're not the wicked who will never be saved. He preserves not the life of the wicked. When are we going to get that? If they obey him and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. That is the peace of God. If men are obedient and keep the commandments of God, even sinners who repent, then they may have the peace of God. For that same reason, upon the birth of the Messiah, it was announced to the shepherds in the fields around Bethlehem, do not fear, for behold, I bring to you a message of great joy, which is for all the people, that today there has been born to you a Savior, who is the anointed prince in the city of David. And this is a sign for you. You shall find an infant swathed and lying in a feeding trough. And suddenly there were with the messenger a multitude of the heavenly army praising Yahweh and saying, Honor to Yahweh in heights and peace upon the earth among approved men. That last verse is very poorly translated in the King James Version. It is not on earth peace goodwill towards men, but peace upon the earth among approved men, or perhaps among men of goodwill. As the word of Yahweh says in Isaiah chapter 48, there is no peace, saith Yahweh, unto the wicked. The wicked will never have the peace of God. Thus we read in the 34th Psalm, in words attributed to David, <clears throat> depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of Yahweh are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of Yahweh is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and Yahweh hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Yahweh is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. Those goats in the parable of the Sheep and the goats didn't do any of those things to the least of these little ones. They that hate the righteous shall be desolate. Yahweh redeems the souls of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Now Christ once again speaks of his departure and of his coming to them. You have heard that which I said to you, I go and I come to you. Now he's talking about this earthly, physical manifestation. <clears throat> if you have loved me, you would have rejoiced that I go to the Father, because the Father is greater than me. 
Here I am persuaded that Yahshua Christ sets an example, that even though he is God incarnate, he is also a man, and God the Father is greater than any man. He came not to live as God on earth, but to live and die as a man, that, like any man, has a spirit which would return to God once he died. <clears throat> Likewise, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we read of the body and the spirit at death. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. However, Christ, being God, could also return to his disciples as an advocate or comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, as he said, I come to you. Furthermore, being God, he could lay down his life as he said in John chapter 10, in order that he take it up again, which he also did. In the second sentence of verse 28, the conditional particle if and the aorist verb rendered you have loved do not indicate that they did not love him, but rather, he is only explaining the condition necessary for the next part of his statement. In that next part, the imperfect tense verb translated here as, you would have rejoiced, may have been better rendered, you would rejoice. And they certainly did rejoice once they understood all of the implications of what he was describing. Therefore, writing in the opening chapter of his first epistle of the salvation which is in Christ, Peter had said in verse 6, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom not having seen you love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Continuing with verse 29. And now I have spoken to you before it happens, in order that when it should happen, you shall believe. As we have also explained earlier in our commentary on this chapter, the apostles did not understand everything which was occurring as the events unfolded. Even though he had told them beforehand many of the things that were going to occur. This is clear in the, in the interaction between Christ, Judas Iscariot, and the rest of his disciples as they celebrated their Last Supper. But here he tells them that he is saying these things so that once they do happen, then they may realize and remember what he had said to them, and for that reason they would believe. So now he gives them an imminent warning. No longer shall I discuss many things with you, 
a warning of imminent danger. For the ruler of society or of the society comes and he does not have anything in me. The phrase ruler of the society, ruler of society, I'm sorry, may have been better translated ruler of the society, where the King James Version has prince of this world. In the Greek text, there is a definite article, but there is not a pronoun. Where it says, and he does not have anything in me. Our translation is quite literal, except that anything is literally nothing, where in Greek the double negative is an ordinary negative. However, that clause may have been better better written if it were translated idiomatically, and he has no part with me, as we would say in English. Here Christ is warning that the prince of this world cometh, and it was the high priest and his cohorts and officers who were being brought by Judas, who had appeared a short time later. So it is apparent that the prince of this world, or the ruler of the society, is simply a reference to the high priest. Paul of Tarsus used this phrase in that same manner in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he wrote of that wisdom which is from God, and he said, Howbeit, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. The wisdom of the princes of this world, therefore, is the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Paul continues, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Christ continues. But in order that the society would know that I love the Father, then just as the Father has given a command to me, Thusly I shall do. In other words, Christ had to die. No longer I shall discuss many things with you, for the prince of this world comes. Christ had to die. And since they had no part with him, they were not his people. Or he wouldn't have said, if they were his people, and he came to forgive all sins, he would not have said, he does not have anything in me, or he has no part with me. So they could not have been his people. They must have been Edomites. The command which Yahweh gave to his Christ, the Messiah, is made evident in the prophets in several places. For example, in Daniel chapter 9, it is said that the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. And here, later in John chapter 15, 
Christ says, a greater love than this has no one has, that one would lay down his life on behalf of his friends. So the Messiah was cut off, but not for himself. He laid down his life on behalf of his friends. Or in John chapter 10, he laid down his life on behalf of the sheep. In the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53, we read in part, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, the children of Israel in general. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Another example of the command of which Christ speaks is found in the 22nd Psalm, where we read, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on Yahweh that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. All of this unfolded in the accounts of the crucifixion. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou did make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. A potsherd is a fragment from a broken clay jar. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be thou not far from me, O Lord. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. All of these prophecies and others reveal and were fulfilled in the final days of the ministry of Christ. And he was ultimately delivered from the power of the dog in his subsequent resurrection. Concluding verse 31 and chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, Christ exclaims, Arise, we must go from here. 
Now we shall begin our commentary of John chapter 15. Christ and his disciples are now leaving the place where they had shared their last supper together before the crucifixion, which was not really the last supper as it is popularly called. Since Christ ate again with his disciples after the resurrection, as it is recorded in John chapter 21 and in Luke chapter 24. Now, he starts another long discourse, which occurs either as they walk to the Mount of Olives, or perhaps once they had arrived there. It's hard to tell. This discourse is recorded through three chapters of John's Gospel. Then, in John chapter 18, it is recorded that they cross the book Kedron, the brook Kedron, and enter into a garden which is called by the other disciples Gethsemane, which means oil press. So we're going to spend three chapters either walking to the Mount of Olives or Perhaps the discourse didn't begin until they got there, but it probably started as they were walking, would be my guess. There might be a scripture later on in these chapters that indicate that to us. If there is, I didn't read ahead to find it. I apologize for that. In John chapter 18, it is recorded that they cross the brook and go into the garden, and that is where... Judas and the high priests catch up with him. Now, we don't know if they actually came to this house first, looking for him, expecting to find him there, and Judas just went on to find him at a place that he knew from familiarity of his habits, where he would be. There's things that we don't know, but Judas and the high priest catch up with him in the garden in John chapter 18. So Christ beginning this long discourse, exclaims, I am the true vine, and my father is the planter. John chapter 15, verse 1. We have already made the assertion that Yahshua Christ is the first light created in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Excuse me. I'm trying to drink to soothe my throat. And that light of Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, represented the first manifestation of God in his creation. Therefore, speaking of John the Baptist and then of Christ in the first chapter of his gospel, and for that reason, John wrote, he was not that light, speaking of John the Baptist, but was sent to bear witness of that light, speaking of Yahshua Christ. So John the Baptist was sent to bear witness of Christ, whom John the Apostle was describing when he wrote a few verses later that he was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. So, if the world was made by Christ, as both John and also Paul of Tarsus had professed, 
then Christ is also Yahweh come into the world, as Christ is both the true vine and the creator, which is the Father who is the planter. God the Father is the planter, and God the Son is his manifestation in the world, the light, the true vine, and therefore the tree of life, as he was in the midst of the Garden of Eden with Adam. In relation to that, after the transgression of Adam, we read in part in Genesis chapter 3, And they heard the voice of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God amongst the trees of the garden. Of course, I don't believe that Yahweh God was actually walking like a man in the garden. He didn't have a body yet. He didn't have a human body until he was born to a woman thousands of years later. But that's the way it's pictured, speaking in human terms. In spite of any interpretation of what things Christ had said as examples or as instructions for men, he is God the Father, manifest as God the Son, or else he was not really the Creator, because in all of the Old Testament scriptures, it is clearly and explicitly Yahweh who created the world. But the New Testament words of Christ and his apostles are certainly not telling us that the Old Testament is wrong. Rather, they uphold the Old Testament writings consistently. This is a paradox that is even difficult even for most identity Christians to understand, rather sadly. But he and his father are one and not two out of three. And as he attested in John chapter 14, he is also the comforter or the advocate, which is also called the Holy Spirit. So all three of them must be one. Furthermore, Christ could only claim to be the true vine if he is Yahweh. As Yahweh created Adam, and as we learn in Luke, Adam is the son of God, not the son of Christ. If Adam is not the son of God, then Christ could not have been the root of Jesse or the root of David. And Christ could not be a root at all, having been born many generations from Adam. I should say, if Adam is not the Son of God, and if Christ is not God, then Christ couldn't have been the root. He couldn't have been the root of Jesse or David, since he was born a hundred generations from Adam, or maybe it's 30 or 40, I forget, but it's a lot. Yahweh God is the Father, Christ is the root, the true vine, and Christ is born of his own people, thereby also being the branch of Jesse. Christ, being both God and man, can thereby claim that he is root and branch. When he created Adam, he was present in the garden with Adam and knowing 
that he would have to come as one of his own creation, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the tree of life was planted on earth. Now Christ, the root of the tree of life, speaks of the hand of God the Father upon his branches. Each branch in me, not bearing fruit, he takes it, and each bearing fruit, he cleanses it in order that it would bear more fruit. The verb for cleanse is katahiro, and here it is translated literally. Where speaking of plants, as Liddell and Scott affirm, it may have been interpreted as prune. He prunes it in order that it would bear more fruit. Likewise, Adam was given the task of tending the garden, which we read in Genesis chapter 2. And Yahweh God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. If man was to multiply and fill and have dominion over the earth, and if Adam the patriarch was to tend a garden, he cannot. we cannot imagine that he was meant only to prune grapes and figs. But perhaps this is a metaphor for the cultivation of a society. Later, Yahweh would lament the sins of Israel in Isaiah chapter 17 and declare the resulting punishment which would come upon them. Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation, and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength, therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants, and shalt set it with strange slips. In the day shalt thou make thy plant to grow, and in the morning shalt thou make thy seed to flourish. But the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. That's the end of men who fuck niggers and try to have babies with niggers. The heap, the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. Likewise, Yahweh lamented the sins of Judah. And in the word of God in Jeremiah chapter 2, we read, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. Because evidently they couldn't wash the nigger off of their faces. Or the Jew. A later warning came in Jeremiah chapter 6, where we read, Be thou instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from thee, lest I make thee desolate, a land not inhabited. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, They shall thoroughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine. Turn back thine hand as a grape gatherer into the baskets. Christ was referring to Israel, and in his words here, Christ was referring to the relationship of the history between Yahweh and Israel, where he says, and each bearing fruit, he prunes it in order that it would bear more fruit. Ultimately, Israel and Judah would be cleansed in their period of captivity, where we read from Amos chapter 9.
Behold, the eyes of Yahweh God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith Yahweh. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations like as corn or grain in the archaic language of the King James Version, like as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say, the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. People say that today all the time. They race mix, they fornicate, they sodomize. And they say, the evil shall not overtake us. But this is the cleansing of the branches to which Christ refers. And now, in reference to those who would receive the gospel and keep the commandments, among which his disciples are first, he says, you are already clean. You are already clean through the word which I have spoken to you. As they partook of their meal that evening, as it was described in John chapter 13, Yahshua had washed the feet of his disciples and said, he that is washed needs not save to wash his feet. In other words, he does he that is washed does not need to wash except to wash his feet. And that's because of the cultural climate of the time and the types of clothing they had. But is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all, wearing sandals and walking around in a semi-arid land they needed to wash their feet, and they did that customarily before meals or even before entering a home if they had that luxury. He that is washed needs not to save except to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and you are clean, but not all. The reference to you are clean, but not all was a reference to Judas Iscariot, who was ostensibly an Edomite because he would not be cleansed by the word of God. Yahweh had promised to cleanse all of the sins of the children of Israel. As we read, for, for example, in Micah chapter 7, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Again, in Jeremiah chapter 33, not long after the promise of a new covenant, and I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them as at the first, and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. 
If Judas were an Israelite, he would have been cleansed in Christ. But he could not be clean, so evidently he was not truly of Israel. In the historical context of first century Judea, he must have been an Edomite, like most of the rest of the Jews who rejected Christ as his name and the name of his father, Iscariot, also serves to demonstrate. The disciples of Christ were cleansed through his word. John the Baptist had baptized with water. Here, Yahshua Christ had attested that he baptizes or cleanses with his word. He being the Holy Spirit, as he also attested here. We read in Acts chapter 1. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Later, in this same discourse, we read in John chapter 17, in a prayer of Christ, which is an appeal to God, Sanctify them through thy truth. The truth cleanses us. Thy word is truth. The word of God cleanses us. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, <clears throat> that they also might be sanctified through the truth. The truth sanctifies us. The truth cleanses us and prepares us to face God, to be presented to God. That's what sanctified means. After the apostle Peter preached the gospel to the household of Cornelius, he realized that they received the Holy Spirit before he had a chance to baptize them with water. So, in the progression of his knowledge, which we've already proven actually occurred, in the progression of his knowledge, he made a profession as to the consequences of that realization in Acts chapter 11. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Later, he would write in chapter 3 of his first epistle, making an allegory of water baptism and the flood of Noah. The like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, in other words, not to be dipped in water, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how we're baptized. Baptism is through the word of God in Christ and a knowledge of the resurrection of Yahshua Christ. This is also evident in Romans chapter 6 where Paul asks, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized unto Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? It is again evident in Luke chapter 12 where Christ speaks of his coming crucifixion and resurrection and says, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? So Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 that there is one Lord, 
one faith, one baptism. And in Ephesians chapter 5, he describes that one baptism. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. We're cleansed with the word. We're sanctified with the truth. Where we see that the true Christian baptism is in the word and not in water. So in Titus chapter 3, Paul mentioned the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The denominational churches clinging to water baptism, to the ritual of water baptism, are repeating the mistake of Apollos, who was corrected by Priscilla and Aquila, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 18. And a certain Judean named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. Of course, we see that the way of the Lord was simply the keeping of the commandments. So he was instructed in a law, but knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Later, in Acts chapter 19, Paul corrected other disciples of John in that same manner. They were not adding the baptism of the word to the baptism of John. Rather, the baptism of the word replaced the baptism of John in the progression of their knowledge. The apostles took several years to figure that out. But Paul had attested that there is but one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. That one baptism, what's it in? Water? Or is it in the word? It can't be in both. There's only one baptism. Maybe you could just cut up all the pages of your Bible and fill your bathtub with them and jump in. Christ says in chapter 15, verse 4, You abide in me, and I in you. Just as the branch is not able to bear fruit by itself unless it should abide on the vine, thusly neither do you unless you would abide in me. The third century papyrus, P66, has at the end has the end of verse 4 to read, Thusly also is he who is abiding in me. Just a strange, there's these strange little anomalies in all of these manuscripts here and there that really don't change the meaning, but they're just 
totally different readings at times. Without the root, the plant is useless and will dry up and wither. The same is true of branches without the main trunk. Paul of Tarsus made an analogy in Romans chapter 11, which described the Israelites of the nations who were being reconciled to Christ as wild olive branches being grafted in. Then he described the disobedient Israelites of Judea, those for whom he prayed would accept Christ, back there in Romans chapter 9, as the natural branches of the cultivated tree, which were going to be broken off for the rejection of Christ. But Paul's analogy was not new, as it was apparently borrowed from Jeremiah chapter 11, where there is a similar analogy by which Yahweh had announced his chastisement for the sins of ancient Israel. In verse 16, Yahweh called thy name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. For Yahweh of hosts that planted thee has pronounced evil against thee. My father is the planter. For the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense unto Baal. Ostensibly, those broken branches were the same wild olives, which Paul had later described as having been grafted into the tree upon their acceptance of the gospel of Christ. Now Christ makes the proclamation once again. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who is abiding in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you are not able to do anything. We read in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam was put out from the presence of Yahweh in the Garden of Eden, and the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. If a man must abide in Christ in order to bear fruit, then Christ must be that tree of life, which the man must take hold of in order to eat and live forever, as he is also the way, the truth, and the life. Ostensibly, <clears throat> ostensibly, Adam was the first branch on the tree of life. And when the Messiah was proclaimed in the words of the prophets, it was foretold that he would be both a root and a branch of Jesse, the father of David. The vine must represent the race of Adam, as Christ is proclaimed to be the root of his people and a branch from among their branches. Thus we read in Isaiah chapter 11, 
And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh. And he shall judge not after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove with reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Paul of Tarsus cited a later verse of this same passage. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10 in reference to Christ in Romans chapter 15 where he wrote and again Isaiah says there shall be the root of Jesse and he is arising to be ruler of nations upon him the nations have expectation later in chapter 5 of the revelation Yahshua Christ described himself as the root of David and once again, in Revelation chapter 22, he declared, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. The only way that Christ could be the root of David, the root of David's father, Jesse, and also a branch from the stem of Jesse and the offspring of David, is that Christ is both the son of David and Yahweh God himself. This paradox is addressed by Christ in a different way. In Matthew chapter 22, in an exchange which he had with the Pharisees. And from verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He says unto them, How then does David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither dared any man from that day forth Ask him any more questions. Christ was both David's son and David's Lord, the root and the offspring of David, because he is also David's God, being God. And he is also the tree of life. Now, in relation to broken branches, if one should not abide in me, he shall be cast outside like a branch that is withered, and they shall gather, and they cast them into the fire, and it burns. Remaining disobedient to God, we suffer trials and tribulations in this life. We should expect punishments in this life. For the same thing, Adam serves as an example, where when he himself failed to keep the commandment which Yahweh had given him, his punishment was declared, and we read, And unto Adam he said, 
Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, Adam being the first feminist, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Then, after the promise of future redemption, by clinging to the tree of life, we read, Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. But the path to the tree of life was maintained by the cherubim, the guardians of the law, and the mercy seat, so that eventually Adam would have a way back to the purpose for which he was created. So, in Revelation chapter 2, in the message to the seven churches, we read, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes... I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Then in Revelation chapter 7, of those who suffered the great tribulation and washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. John chapter 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. <coughs> Finally, in Revelation chapter 22, Christ declares that I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. And a little further on, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Being both the root, or the creator, and the branch, or offspring, and also the true vine, Christ is the tree of life. But his people are already branches on that same tree, being members of that same Adamic race. So we also read in that chapter, which is a description of the city of God, that in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The twelve manner of fruits must be an allegorical reference to the twelve tribes of Israel, as David and Jesse were also described as branches on that tree. That is why gates, that is why the names of the twelve tribes are written on the gates of that city. 
The months cannot be literal, as it says that the city, as it says in that same place, that the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon. So the months must only represent the bearing of fruit by each tribe at an appropriate time. Yahshua is the tree of life, but the tree also represents the race which he had created in the beginning, the race of Adam, in opposition to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For that reason, in the words of the prophets, were the children of Israel described as a pleasant plant and a noble vine, among similar allegories. The sin of Adam was fornication, but keeping the law and clinging to his own tree, Adam would have redemption at some point in the future. The proof that the sin of Adam was fornication is evident in his punishment, and there was only one law given by God for which men of his race could have been punished. Both he himself in Genesis chapter 3 and later his descendants in Genesis chapter 6. And that law was given in Genesis chapter 2. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Men are still eating from it, and all of their offspring are also going to die. From the descriptions in each chapter, we know what was meant by the law in each of those chapters. We know what was meant by the law. In the end, in the last chapters of the Revelation, there is a tree of life, but there is no more tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The true vine and the tree of life are one and the same. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the corrupt vine which resulted from the sin of the devil and his angels. By the end, by the time that Revelation chapter 22 is fulfilled, the goat nations will have joined, will have all joined the devil and his angels in the lake of fire. Yahweh willing, we shall resume our commentary on John chapter 15 next Friday. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and not the God of any nigger or Jew or Chinaman or Indian or any other bastard. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of our white European race, and thank you for listening.